This morning I want to invite you to take your scriptures and read along with me in the book of Acts. A story, a really unusual story in scripture. Acts chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 16. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, rise, kill, and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call unclean. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up into heaven. She sits on the front steps of the house, waiting, waiting for the ride that never comes. She's trying to calm herself as much as a seven-year-old waiting for a birthday party can calm herself. She smooths out the folds of the white party dress that mom has spent the last three weeks stitching together. It's prettier than, than anything she's ever worn, so full of ruffles and flourishes and tiny white bows that she feels like a real princess. At least, Mom said she looked like one. And truthfully, down deep, that's what she feels like today. Somewhere deep inside her heart, she's smiling, for she feels special and beautiful. Her brown eyes dance at the thought of all the fun that this golden afternoon has promised. Just then the phone rings inside the house and mom steps out on the porch. It's for you, honey, she says. I, I think it's Samantha calling. With eager bounds, the little girl leaps up from the steps and charges in through the front door, her fingers already reaching for the phone, her heart fluttering with excitement. It's Samantha's party that she has been invited to. And Samantha is her best friend in the whole wide world. Hello, Allison, says the voice at the other end of the line, sounding strangely cold and, and distant. This is Samantha. Listen, Allison, I've decided that you can't come to my birthday party today. The other girls said they wouldn't come if I invited a black person. The phone drops from the little hand. The brown eyes brim over with tears. The shiny black curls are buried in mom's apron. The beautiful party dress seems to wilt. Mommy, mommy, she cries. Why, why does this happen to me? He leans over the injection molding machine, straining to see the Spanish-English phrase book he has propped up in the brackets. I come into the house, you come into the house, we come into the house. He mutters as the plastic molding machine hisses and whirls and 36 plastic picnic forks are dumped out on a conveyor belt. Whir, slide, clatter, press. 
His hands know the routine well. Every 18 seconds, the hot machine disgorges picnic forks. He scans them with his eyes, picking out the ones that are misshapen or damaged. I come into the house. You come into the house. We come into the house, he says with fierce determination. This, this language called English, it is so strange, he thinks. Back home in El Salvador, he was called the poet. The boy with the golden tongue, the dreamy 17-year-old who spun tales with such artistry that, that even the old men stopped their gossiping. But that was eight years ago, and that was in Spanish. Whirr, slide, clatter, press. This job at $14.60 an hour is the best he could find with limited English skills. But a take-home pay of $424 a week doesn't go far enough to feed a wife and two little boys. He feels a tap on the shoulder and he turns to find the foreman standing behind him, motioning that he wants to talk with him in the office. What will it be today? Another job cleaning the bathroom after everyone else goes home. Another hour of unpaid labor sweeping up the floor while guys named O'Malley and Schmidt head for the bar down the street. Julio, the foreman, says with a slight smile curling around the edges of his lips, Julio, we've just gotten word from, from corporate that we've got to make some cost cuts in our health care package here if, if we're going to stay in business here. And Now, don't worry, don't worry, you won't lose your job. But we're going to have to drop your hours to 29 hours a week so that you'll be below the threshold for health care coverage. I know, I know it's not fun. We're all hurting these days, especially because of all these new health care mandates from the government. But we have to start somewhere, and, and since our non-English speaking employees have been with us last time, and, and because they require greater supervision, we have to begin with them and with you. I'm sure you'll find a way to work it all out. You people always do. Julio's legs take him back toward the plastic injection molding machine, but his mind is far away. He can't miss the sly smiles of the guys named O'Malley and Schmidt as they lean into their machines. They know. They know that he can't find the words to complain or the courage to talk with the shop steward or the money to find a lawyer who will stop this harassment. Whirr, slide, clatter, press. Whirr, slide, clatter, press. I will go into the house, Julio says with fierce determination. I will go into the house. This morning, my friends, I wish I could tell you that stories like that never happen anymore, or at least that they never happen anywhere near here. I wish I could tell you that the curse of racial and ethnic prejudice and mistreatment was a thing of the past, that as America enters the third decade of the 21st century, we don't need to concern ourselves with these ugly chapters from our past. I wish I could even tell you this morning that I have never found such attitudes within God's church.
I wish I could tell you that the demon of division has been banished from God's people, that it lies drowned and destroyed with all those pigs that rushed off the cliff at Gergasa. I wish I could tell you that we are all gathered virtually this morning as brothers and sisters who really believe that we stand on equal footing in the presence of our God. But I can't do that this morning. For anything like honesty forces me to admit that even among the members of God's church, even in the remnant called out to testify to God's goodness at the end of time, the adversary has been remarkably successful at sowing seeds of prejudice, and racism, and division. It's nothing new, as our passage of Scripture makes abundantly clear. Prejudice against those of different race or religion or ethnic background or language is as old, as old as sin itself. And I, for one, am grateful that Scripture doesn't try to hide the mistakes of, that even some of the most respected men and women we find in the Bible made in this regard. I'm afraid that if I had been the author of the book of Acts, I, I would have been tempted to leave out the story of Peter's vision on the rooftop. It shows that even great men can have feet of clay. Even sandals that walked on the wave tops of Galilee can get brittle with the sin of pride and privilege. Even those who preach the good news can sometimes fail to see that it is the good news for everyone else as well. Those who've been given the privilege of entering the house of the Lord frequently seem intent on closing the door behind them so that all the rabble doesn't come in. Well, this morning, we're going to discover in God's word that Jesus loves the rabble. That wondrous mix of races and languages and economic groups that make up this world. As Jesus said it very clearly, my house, my house, will be a house of prayer for all people. Do you believe it this morning? If we had to give a numerical rating to the really strange visionary experiences of Scripture, I am pretty sure that Peter's vision would end up near the top. That vision on the rooftop of Joppa would right up, right up there with the strangest of them. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd personally give it a 13. You may be fascinated with Ezekiel's image of a wheel within a wheel, or of the great image of Daniel 2 or of the beasts emerging from the sea in Daniel 7 and 8, or with the lamb-like beast of Revelation 13, but for sheer exoticness, there, there's not much that can be compared to this strange episode of beasts being let down from the sky in a giant white sheet. Perhaps that story fascinated me as a child, because that was the kind of thing I was likely to see when when I was running in a high fever before mom arrived with an aspirin and a cold cloth for my forehead. But scripture makes it very clear today that Peter wasn't suffering from some kind of delirium or sunstroke. 
And try as they might, the liberal critics of God's word haven't made much progress with the notion that this vision of beasts was, it was really just a projection of Peter's ravenous appetite. Now, I've been hungry a time or two in my life, despite appearances. But I don't think I've ever fallen into a trance before dinner in which I dreamed of eating porcupines or pythons. Luke makes it very clear that Peter's vision was something from the Lord and, and not just the bubblings of excess stomach acid. Peter saw something like a giant bedsheet being lowered out of heaven that, that contained a veritable Noah's Ark of animals, clean and unclean animals all mixed together. Cattle with koala bears, goats with geckos, sheep with seagulls. That in itself would have probably startled a man like Peter who grew up in a part of the world not known for its exotic animals. He knew all about sheep and cows and goats and fish and even the occasional bear. But little in his life had ever prepared him for Gila monsters and crocodiles and hyenas and hummingbirds. And as if this traveling menagerie wasn't enough, Peter was next confronted with a voice, a voice he remembered only too well, commanding him to make a selection from this motley group of animals and kill it and eat it for dinner. If you've ever doubted that the Lord has a sense of humor, you'd do well to read this story a couple of times, maybe even this afternoon. At a moment when his old disciple was already hungry enough to eat a horse, the Lord put just such an animal in front of Peter and seemed to be saying, go ahead, eat a horse. The same Lord who had three times told Peter to feed my sheep now seemed to be telling him, feed on this rhinoceros. And Peter was horrified truly and deeply horrified in a way that only an observant, conscientious Jew could be horrified. Everything in his religious training, everything in his personal life had taught him to make very careful distinctions about the kinds of food he ate. Not only would the Jews of Palestine avoid the pigs, that their Roman conquerors raised and ate, but just to be on the safe side, they avoided the Romans as well. Few parts of the law of Moses had taken such a hold in the Jewish mind as the Levitical standards of clean and unclean meats. And Peter was quite understandably shocked and scandalized when he heard the voice of his good master saying, rise, kill and eat. Well, now what would it be? Camel sandwich? A hummingbird hors d'oeuvre. Maybe a rattlesnake casserole. When you follow the story of headstrong Peter through the Gospels, you find that he apparently didn't have many qualms about speaking his mind in any situation. And true to form, his first response to the Lord's command that he should rise, kill, and eat, it was a refusal. Matthew tells us on an earlier occasion that Peter actually rebuked Jesus when Jesus said that he was going to suffer and to die. And now when Jesus appears to be telling him that he must make a change in his eating habits, Peter flat out refuses. No, Lord, he says, not me. I've never eaten anything common or unclean before. 
Peter's reason for why he's going to refuse this strange command seems simple enough. He's never done anything like that before. Now, that's a piece of logic to wrap your mind around. The Lord who you promised to obey with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, one day tells you to do something different than you've ever done before, and you say, no, Lord, I've never done it that way. Does that sound like obedience to you? But Peter wasn't the only one in this scene with the gift of rebuking. Back came a rebuke from heaven to dazed and dazzled Peter. It gave him an answer he certainly didn't want. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. In very plain language, Jesus was telling Peter that he was wrong, that he was labeling something unclean, that God had made clean. Jesus was telling him that his old attitudes wouldn't work anymore. Jesus was telling him that his old views wouldn't do anymore. Jesus was telling him that his old prejudices about what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable, they weren't in harmony with God's view of the situation. Many of the people who read this passage about the vision of Peter on the rooftop, they stop right here and never go on to read the rest of the story. See, they say, see, all the old standards about clean and unclean foods have been thrown away. God has made everything clean to eat, and I have just as much right to my python cheese puff as you do to your veggie burger loaf. I really wish that people who believe like that would go on and read a little further. I really wish that people who have an ax to grind or actually a knife to sharpen, about eating lizards and hawks and kangaroos, would read on this in this story and get as far in their understanding as Peter got in his understanding. For Peter concludes in verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, this vision is not about food. It's not about eating lizards and hawks and kangaroos. It's about people. It's about Romans and Parthians and Arabians and Greeks. God wasn't trying to overthrow the careful, healthful distinctions about good and bad food that had always been part of his message to his people and are still part of his message today. God was trying to overthrow the tight little restrictions about who was good and who wasn't, that were never part of his message to his people and are certainly not part of his message today. It was Greeks, not geckos, that God wanted Peter to love. It was Romans, not rabbits, with whom God wanted Peter to eat. It was Gentiles, not reptiles, whom Jesus wanted his church to accept. And those who try to make this passage say something else, they're simply putting their taste buds ahead of the truth. That's the genius of the devil at work in the church, my friends. He gets us to focus on things of little or, or marginal importance, and so we get into debates about those things instead of learning about discipleship and faith. 
The devil loves nothing better than to see God's remnant church divided by food fights over veganism or vegetarianism, or whether you ought to serve any beverage other than water at the church potluck. And on the other side, because the devil is always working both sides of the church, the devil would love nothing better than that you walk away from this passage of Scripture expressing what you think of as your freedom to eat anything that slithers or crawls or flies. Because if he can get you to think that, he will have gotten you to ignore a much more important lesson. A lesson that God wants to bring home to your hard heart and to my hard heart. The devil would rather have you think about food than fellowship any day. Satan would rather that you trade recipes than that you practice reconciliation. The adversary would rather that you spend your time thinking about spices instead of becoming part of that sweet savor of Christian fellowship that ascends before his throne. But slow as he was to accept it, Peter finally got it in the end. And my prayer today is that we will get it too. Even though Peter was laboring under the burden of hundreds of years of Jewish exclusiveness and pride and isolation, Peter glimpsed a pivotal truth that God wanted him to learn about his church that we sorely need to hear in our church in our movement today. Peter sums up the lesson that God was trying to teach him. In verse 34 of Acts chapter 10, he, he says, Truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That was the most revolutionary thing any Jew could ever say. For everything in his culture and his training and his understanding of God had taught him to believe that God cared only for Jews and not at all for non-Jews. A popular maxim of the day had it that no Jew could be lost and no Gentile could be saved. The Roman historian Tacitus, writing in the same century, says of those who claim to be God's people, the Jews are extremely loyal toward one another and always ready to show compassion. But toward every other people, they feel only hate and enmity. And not only did it just sort of happen to work it out that way, but men like Peter had been raised to be proud of their attitudes, to glory in their separateness. They had been raised to cherish their distinction from the rest of the rabble, from the rest of humanity, whom they thought of as hopelessly and irretrievably lost. But my friends, Peter said it well. God shows no partiality. God has no favorites. Or as the Greek puts it, God is not one who receives the face. God doesn't make his judgments about us on the basis of external characteristics over which we have no control. Samuel tells us that while we look on the outward appearance, the Lord looks only on the heart. God, God is not one who receives the face. The fact that I have a large nose or bushy red eyebrows it doesn't make me one bit more valuable or one bit less valuable to the kingdom or to God's church. 
The fact that you have blue eyes, or dark skin, or wrinkles, or clumsy hands that can't play the piano, that doesn't add or take away even one iota of your value to God's church. Heaven declares that you are of infinite worth whether you ever successfully master English or whether you ever own a house in the suburbs. Your value to God, and let me add, your value to God's church has nothing to do with your race, your language, your country, your gender, your age, your job, your education, your health, or your wealth, and it's about time that God's people came around to say so. And though there are probably some of you listening to me this morning who are quietly wishing that I would leave this point and go on to something more comfortable, I can't leave until I say what God has put on my heart to say this morning. I have been distressed, deeply distressed, as I've gone about more than 40 years of ministry in this remnant church. I've been distressed by the subtle and, and not so subtle expressions of racial and ethnic prejudice I see, I hear, I hear about. It's the chance line I hear from the other side of the committee table when the meeting is just broken up and people sitting there don't think anyone else can hear them. It's the contemptuous look of the good white Anglo, Anglos when, when a Hispanic or a Vietnamese steps on the elevator with them. It's the taunting of blue-eyed, blonde-haired kids by those of darker complexions that I hear in the hallways of schools. It's the prevalence of cruel racial jokes that I hear half-whispered in the aisles. And as I've said earlier, I wish I could say that none of it has ever been seen or heard in God's church. And I hope, I pray, that it will never again be seen or heard in God's church. We teach our children to sing red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. And then we go on to alter the message so that our children quietly understand that white is more precious than black. And, and black is more precious than yellow, or yellow is more precious than red. We sing with all our hearts, in Christ there is no east or west, in him no north or south, but uh, we tell our friends we'll never go into that part of town. We know all the words to the church has one foundation, but then we try to build separate little structures on that one foundation where we can meet with people who look and sound just like us. My friends, I still believe, I really do, God's church is still the apple of his eye. Enfeebled and defected as it may be, Ellen White writes, it is still the only object on earth on which Christ bestows his supreme regard. He still has regard for his church. He still has sympathy for our weakness. He still cares, cares about growing us up into the measure of the stature of Christ. I still believe that God's will for this end time church is that we be that daring, caring movement 
The kind of church that welcomes in strangers without asking if they got a membership in the country club or shop at Bloomingdale's or get their gear from L.L. Bean. And just as soon as this awful pandemic has begun to wane, we, we can again become the kind of church that literally throws its arms around sinners. The kind of church that reaches out to the hurting and to the hungry and says, here, friend, here, here's a loaf of bread. Here's a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. My friends, I promise you, I promise you that in the coming weeks and months, our willingness to accept diversity and difference is going to be challenged. It's going to be challenged. I have already seen the growing trickle of newcomers that by God's grace will soon become a torrent. Wherever I go around the world, I find God reaching out beyond our social groups and reaching out beyond our preferred colors and reaching out beyond our chosen languages and bringing his end-time church the people whom his spirit has been calling. One day soon, you're going to look up in, on some Sabbath morning and, and find yourself sitting beside someone who looks very different than you do. Perhaps they smell of cigarette smoke or speak a language you don't understand. You'll see people who may never have a chance to live in million-dollar homes or even get the education they deserve. But they are just as much the children of God. You'll see people here who are still toddlers in their walk with God. They, they don't yet understand the claims that discipleship makes on our lives and on our lifestyles. And if I don't miss my guess this morning, some of you, some of you are probably going to find yourselves powerfully uncomfortable in the months ahead for most of what seemed safe and predictable about the church you knew will begin to vanish. Some of you will perhaps be just as uncomfortable as Peter was when he thought the Lord was asking him to eat lions and tigers and bears, oh my. I hope by now you've gotten the point that God is calling you not to eat that which is strange, but to eat with strangers. Not to go looking for lunch, but to go out there and live his love. My friends, we are a special movement. We have a special mission. And I submit to you this morning that it's a mission that no other movement and no other denomination can fulfill. If your ancestors came from India and you still speak Hindi at home, you belong here. If your family lived in Dixie and your ancestors were once cruelly enslaved, you belong here. If you struggle with your schooling or you struggle with your English, you belong here. If you need a walker because you're 90 or you need a walker because you're nine months, you belong here. If you've got three garages or no garage or your only car is stuck in some mechanic's garage, you belong here. If you're slim or if you're wide, you belong here. If you're short or if you're tall, you belong here. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it, this, this is the place to which you are being called by the grace of Jesus. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the ever-growing, ever-expanding, 
always inclusive, never exclusive family of the Son of God. For as the Apostle Paul declared, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you. You are all one in Christ Jesus.